this week on The Perfect Scam. The way that this whole thing was put together by the schemers, it was almost like a cult. They would meet in Las Vegas. They would meet all around the country. There were videos that were taken of the seminars, and they literally just whipped people into a frenzy about this idea. Mantria marketed itself as the next Microsoft, the next Apple. People believed it when they, when they told them that Mantria was going to be the next you know, multi-billion dollar company. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. Everyone loves the notion of getting in on the ground floor of a big new idea, of making a fortune by being an early investor in the next Microsoft or Amazon or Google. And after tough years in the stock market, it's only natural that savers might consider alternative investments. But there is no shortage of snake oil being sold to people looking for high returns. And the investment world is full of alternatives that end badly. Today's story is about a 10-year quest for justice and a Ponzi scheme run by criminals who made sales pitches that would make Bernie Madoff blush. Like this claim, that investors would get rich from technology that could make garbage into gold. Revolutionary clean technology to reduce landfills by 30% and produce high-grade biochar, biocarbon, charcoal, biofuels, and bioenergy. That truly is garbage to gold technology. He was a charismatic guy and he had them in the palm of his hand and, and you know, these people just took him at his word. That's consumer lawyer Patrick Howard. There was a woman that stands out in my mind. Her mother was sick and she was trying to help her mom. And so she took out a mortgage on her mom's house to invest and basically couldn't afford the mortgage that she, she took out. Took the entirety of the mortgage, invested it in this, and lost it all. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you heard story after story like this, right? Yes. They were all like that. They were all like that. Wade McKelvey had a silver tongue and could whip up enthusiasm for almost anything at his Speed of Wealth Club meetings. But right when the term green energy had captured investors' imagination around the globe, McKelvey partnered with a company named Mantria and its founder, Troy Rag. They said Mantria could change the world through a product called biochar, so-called garbage-to-gold technology. Investors gobbled up the sales pitch. So did famous world leaders. Here is Bill Clinton talking about Mantria at the 2009 Clinton Global Initiative meeting. Let me announce the first commitment now. I'd like to ask the participants, Christina Shea, the Senior Vice President of General Mills, Ambassador Elizabeth Bagley, Special Representatives for Global Partnerships from the Department of State, Troy Rag, the Founder and Chairman and CEO of Montreal Corporation. The commitment is to work together to address the global hunger crisis through innovative partnerships with agriculture. Montreal commits to perform trials to prove that biochar or carbon-negative charcoal can sequester carbon, improve soil quality when buried, and reduce emissions. How did an unknown land company dealing in vacant lots in Tennessee end up on stage with famous world leaders? Yeah, I mean, the story of Mantria, it's a fascinating story. So it began here in Philadelphia in 2005. That's Assistant U.S. Attorney 
Robert Livermore. Troy Ragg was a student here at Temple University. And while he was still in school, he wrote a paper on the real estate market in Tennessee. And when he graduated, he wanted to take those ideas into the real world. And he started a company called Mantria, which was designed to market and sell real estate in Tennessee. Now, when I think about Tennessee, I think about Nashville or Knoxville or Chattanooga, which are really vibrant, growing cities. But there are huge swaths of Tennessee, which are completely undeveloped. And when I say undeveloped, I'm talking, you know, no cell phone service undeveloped. I mean, forget about water or sewers or electricity, you know, things that people need to live. And that's the portions of Tennessee that he was trying to develop. So the land was very, very inexpensive. And what Troy's plan was is to take this land, which he could acquire for perhaps $4,000 an acre, and turn around and sell that for $20,000 an acre to to speculators. And so that that was kind of the idea for his company, because if you think about it, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good markup. That's pretty good business to be in. <laughs> yeah. A pretty good business, but Troy's timing is terrible. If you remember 2008, it's when... The market collapsed. The real estate market really got crushed. Early on, he was able to sell some land to investors, to speculators, because at that time, if you remember during that time period, you can get no-doc loans pretty easily. And when those dried up and people couldn't get those, Troy's business, Mantria, basically was on the verge of bankruptcy because they couldn't sell that land to anybody. And so what Troy did then was... Troy created his own bank called Mantria Financial in Tennessee. And what Mantria Financial did was is they financed loans for the sale of the real estate on the land that, that Mantria controlled. So rather than selling this for $20,000, they could sell it now for any amount that they wanted. They could sell it for $50,000, $75,000, dollars $100,000, whatever price that they wanted because they controlled the ability to do these loans. And by doing so, they could generate these huge profits on paper by selling this land, which they were acquiring for $4,000 and selling it on paper for $100,000. And it looked to be a very successful, growing company. But the truth was, they were still losing money hand over fist. Troy's losses keep mounting, and he needs a way out fast. Enter Wade McKelvey and his Speed of Wealth Investment Club. Troy needed investors. He needed people to invest in this business, this mantra of financial business. And he couldn't get any legitimate loans from any banks. So in 2008, uh, a mutual friend of his hooked him up with a, a guy by the name of Wade McKelvey. And Wade was from the Denver, Colorado area. And Wade ran these investment pools called Speed of Wealth. And at that time, the speed of wealth, these investment clubs, they had invested in a lot of really high-risk investments, pre-construction type loans, other types of, of consumer loans, collect, collecting on consumer loans. They even had invested in a pink diamond. And the problem for Wade was that most of these investments were underwater. They were losing money, and the people in this club were not going to – they were not happy because they were afraid that they're going to lose you know, the money they had contributed to this club. 
And so Troy offered Wade a way out of that because hmm. the clubs could then invest in Mantria and at least on paper, gener- participate in these huge paper returns that Mantria was generating. And it also solved Troy's capital problem because Wade had the investors to, to invest in this. And when these investors saw the type of paper returns they were generating, they told their family and friends, and other people started investing in, in Mantria through word of mouth. And so that's how everything really got started. It's one of the oldest stories in investing. Take in money from early investors, promise big returns, pay off those early investors with money from later investors, until the scheme runs out of gas. That's a classic Ponzi scheme. But McKelvey's sales pitch offers something extra, maybe even more important than big money, a chance to be a part of saving the planet Earth. Mantria is selling a green energy dream. Forget land investments, Mantria tells investors they have a chance to get in on the ground floor of the world's newest energy source. So again, around this time, 2008, real estate investment had really lost its luster because the market had completely tanked on the real estate side. And if you think back to that time, oil was trading for like $140 a barrel. President Obama was in office. There was a big kind of push towards green energy. And so Troy Rag is really, he's a, a master marketer and he's also a master manipulator. And so what he was able to do was kind of take those ideas and green energy ideas and started putting them into the Mantria brand. The first thing that he did was to say that this Mantria place, this community that he was purportedly developing in Tennessee, was going to be the first carbon neutral community and, and kind of the green ideas. And, and, and that's how he kind of branded that and to, to market that was this is going to be a green community. And then he saw that this land in Tennessee was heavily forested. So his idea then, well, we're going to take this, all this, these woods, all this wood in the woods, and we're going to turn that into uh, biochar, uh, a product that we could sell and profit from that. And then he took it another step farther in terms of doing system sales. So they were going to sell the actual systems to make biochar. And that's when things started really getting crazy because they started talking about turning trash into cash and how they're going to sell these systems to every community in the United States and how communities would now turn their trash into cash and turn even consumer waste into biochar. Okay, but yeah, but wait a minute. What, so what was biochar? So biochar is a product. You can buy it in any hardware store. And it's basically wood that through tremendous heat and pressure, they turn into charcoal. And that's that's what it is. And it has other commercial uses. If you can refine you know, the, the biochar to a certain level, it can be used in various other applications, various other scientific applications. So biochar, if you could produce a high enough quality, it definitely has a market out there for it. The problem with Troy and Mantria was that they had not perfected their techniques to develop biochar. He didn't sell it as, hey, listen, we have this great idea. You know, we're still in the development stage. You know, we would like some investment money so we can turn this into reality. And that's where the fraud was. The fraud was selling this as a done deal when it was just an idea did seem like this was also the the green wave time when everything 
everyone was was investing in green the way we all invested in dot com ten years earlier, uh, and that that had a, a a role to play in the excitement around the product, right? You're absolutely right, and a lot of the uh, the victims in the case they certainly invested because they were being promised fantastic returns. But a lot of the victims also invested in Mantria and really believed in Mantria because they thought they were going to help create a greener world, uh, a better world for everybody to live in. And so a lot of the the victims were not only financially invested in Mantria, but they were emotionally invested as well. In theory, widespread use of biochar could improve soil, reduce the need for fertilizer and water, and comes with a whole host of other Earth-friendly benefits. Investors put their heart into the biochar idea and then put their money into it. Many even put in money they don't have. You know, McKelvey really targeted people on an emotional level. That's another federal prosecutor, Sarah Wolf. He was just a powerhouse of a salesman, just really a smooth talker. And he is able to talk potential investors into getting in way over their heads. Here's consumer attorney Patrick Howard. He was the was the band leader with trumpeting people. I mean, telling people in the audience, go out, open up a credit card. I mean, this is back in the day, you know, 2010. You know, there's 0% interest or 1% interest. Open up a credit card, take the money off the credit card, $20,000 line that you get, write me the check for the $20,000, pay the minimum payment on the credit card. And, you know, what you're going to get back, you'll get 6 7% back from this investment. You can pay that 1% interest and, and make money every day. And, I mean, he was that guy. And he likes to brag about being that guy. With McKelvey's sales skills, Mantria takes off like a rocket ship, eventually pulling in more than $50 million from excited investors. And that money, well, it's going out just as fast as it's coming in the company has a knack for calling attention to itself. On a rap song by Ice Block released at the time, Mantria executives star in the video. But all this attention, while attracting new investors, also attracts scrutiny from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Part of the investigation was there was an undercover who went to one of these Speed of Wealth seminars and recorded the seminar. And it's just you can just feel the excitement in the room from these recordings. I mean, he's just a really gifted salesman. And he would get these audiences in there and people just were wrapped, wrapped with attention for him. And, you know, it's interesting because... He sounds like a really confident and business savvy guy, but when you really break down what he's saying, it's, it's all fluff, right? There's no substance to it. It doesn't take long before SEC investigators figure out that Mantria doesn't really have a product to sell. The Ponzi is about to collapse and investors are on the verge of losing all their money. But when the SEC first comes sniffing around, McKelvey and the others try to paint the government as the criminal. And it works for a while. You know, especially in this type of environment, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word cult, but the way that this whole thing was put together by the schemers, it was almost like a cult. They would meet in Las Vegas. They would meet 
you know, all around the country, there were videos that were taken of the seminars that they put together. And they literally just whipped people into a frenzy about this idea. And so when the SEC first came in, the reaction of the people who were actually the victims of the scheme was to go against the SEC and say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. These guys are on the up and up. You know, this is going to be a great technology and we're going to make lots of money and you should just go away to the SEC. That is a common technique uh, among criminal defendants is to turn the government into the bad guys. And throughout my, you know, 20 plus year career, I've seen that on countless occasions where criminal defendants who are charged or under investigation make the government out to be the bad guy and to say that, well, if the government had, or the SEC or the government had to come, hadn't come in and shut Mantria down, you guys would all be fabulously wealthy. And in this particular instance here, that's simply not the case. It was a Ponzi scheme. They were, they were losing money hand over fist, and they would have continued doing that if the SEC had not stepped in and shut them down. In November 2009, only a few months after Troy Rack shared the stage with world leaders, the SEC shuts down Mantria and freezes all company assets. The company claimed to be producing 25 tons of biochar per day. It wasn't really making any and hadn't closed a single sale. Quote, Mantria's environmental initiatives have not generated any significant cash, and any returns paid to investors have been funded almost exclusively from other investors' contribution, the SEC says. But as investigators begin looking for the $54 million that investors had given Wade McKelvey and his band of Ponzi criminals, they quickly find there's nothing left. Company bank accounts are basically empty. People who invested their whole life savings, who took cash advances from credit cards, who mortgaged their homes, won't get anything back. Everything is gone. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult, or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. I was in my office. I looked down at my phone and I had a phone call from a 303 area code, which I would later learn was Colorado. That's how Patrick Howard gets involved in the case. And a a gentleman by the name of Dwight Stone left me a voicemail explaining to me that he was an investor in this thing called Mantria, which was based in Balakin, which is right outside of Philadelphia, where my office is located. And that you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission had shut it down and lots of people lost lots of money. And he asked me to call him back. And I did just that. We were heading into Labor Day. The weather was nice. And I just remember getting ready. I think I told Dwight that I was, you know, heading out for a long weekend and that, you know, I would look at it and get back to him. Mantria victims are scrambling to find some way to get at least some of their money back. They need a lawyer badly. But finding one isn't easy. 
they had shopped the case to a number of plaintiff's law firms in Pennsylvania. No one would take the case. And I was the first person to say, I'll do it. The case is going to be complicated. And most important, for all anyone knows, there is no pile of money to go after. It seems hopeless. Patrick's partner needs a lot of coaxing to take the case. I sent him the complaint and he said, you sure about this one? And I said, look, at least, you know, our people are on the right side of this, meaning the investors. And so he said, all right, let's do it. When you got this first call from Dwight, you would never heard of things like biochar, right? Yes. No. Okay. So, so how did, how did they explain to you what they thought the investment was? They had gotten, you know, an award from the Clinton Foundation for being, a, you know, the, the latest and best new green energy company. And so being in the Philadelphia area, it was, you know, once they started talking about Mantria, I mean, you know, we just immediately started Googling and reading everything we possibly could. Very quickly, it becomes apparent how much this case means to victims. You know, I I just, I felt for these people, you know, I just, it was awful. One of them, one of the families, an elderly couple happened to be a, a neighbor of mine. And so I went and met with them and I sat at their kitchen table and, and, you know, their children had largely disowned them because they were so angry with them and they were just the sweetest people and, you know, tears in their eyes when I talked to them about their children, about what they lost. And I I don't even think that they could say out loud at that meeting how much they actually lost. I think they were so embarrassed. The husband had, had retired. And he had had to go back to work to, to in order to pay their, I think they were renting the home they were living in. So Patrick is bound and determined to find some way of getting back these investors some money. But the money is all gone. So if I think roughly my numbers are right. Ultimately, these guys collected about $50 million, right? Correct. Um, a, a third of which was Peter paying Paul. Um, but something around $35 million was lit on fire and just all gone, right? Yes. So Patrick starts looking everywhere for money. I would actually go to where like the SEC confiscated like all the documents, the computers, everything. And they just put them in a storage unit in a small town called Roxborough. And so I would literally drive out to Roxborough and unlock the storage unit and just sit on the floor and just go through the documents, whatever was there, and, you know, take what I wanted that I thought would benefit the case. And for an idea, he looks to the most famous Ponzi scheme of all. As a result of the Bernie Madoff debacle, there was a lot of third parties. And when I say third parties, I mean banks, lawyers, accountants, people that we refer to as the gatekeepers who had found themselves on the receiving end of lawsuits as the result of the Madoff Ponzi scheme. And so, you know, with that in the kind of in my head, we went online and pulled down transcripts of hearings that had occurred in Colorado. And we started immediately just peeling through them to see who or what may have surrounded this Ponzi scheme. And so I started digging, you know, what law firm did they hire? Well, they hired a law firm in Philadelphia who did all of their securities oversight, right? And then what accountants did they hire? And, you know, they had hired an accounting firm in Philadelphia who, you know, who was supposed to have performed some sort of general oversight of the books, 
but then when we got started looking at the accounting documents, I mean, then you start to see the real, you know, oh my God, this was totally a fraud because all of the financial statements that they issued on behalf of Mantria made clear that they were unaudited, that they were not forensic in nature, and that, you know, basically was a complete disclaimer on behalf of the accountant saying, hey, we asked for certain information, they didn't give it to us, buyer beware. But, you know, but that was part of of a document that might have been 150 pages. And that was just a single page amongst all of those. So Patrick can't recover any money from Mantria, but he can go after the deep pockets of firms that vouched for Mantria. And ultimately, he is able to get some relief for victims, about $5 million in a settlement with one of them, still a fraction of what investors had put in. Doing some rough math in my head here, we're talking about at best like 20 cents on the dollar for your victims? Yes, yes. 20 cents on the dollar. He gives the news to his neighbors. That's a tough pill to swallow. It wasn't, it wasn't going to get them back to where they were. And I knew that I needed to start pretty early saying, you know, this is a, this is a high-risk endeavor. We could lose at any turn. And so getting something out of it, you know, it, it will be a win. So Mantry is shut down in 2009. And five years later, in 2014, investors get back pennies on the dollar after a long, drawn-out legal fight. But what about Wade McKelvey and Troy Rag? They are still free. McKelvey, now divorced, is still somehow finding money to spend on his nonstop party life in Colorado. For a while, Patrick wonders why he wasn't bumping into Department of Justice lawyers during his investigation. But eventually he figures McKelvey will never face justice. Until... Years later, I get a phone call sitting in my office one day. It's the FBI in Philadelphia. And they asked me for my accounting. And so and so we gave them, I, again, years later, we gave them everything we had with respect to, you know, what we had uncovered factually, and then all of our accounting work. It was years later. And I was, hmm. I was shocked at the phone call, to be honest with you. If the case, the case was finalized in August of 2014, I would, I want to say tw- at least 2017, 2016. Somewhere in that range. I mean, you know, to the point where I didn't even think that the statute of limitations was viable for the criminal prosecution. Actually, that statute of limitations clock is indeed ticking loudly when Patrick gets that call. It was initiated by Robert Livermore, the assistant U.S. attorney, who is suddenly in a hurry. My criminal chief walked into my office and said that there was this $54 million Ponzi scheme and that the statute of limitations was going to expire in three months. And I had to get it done in three months. And if you know anything about kind of federal criminal investigations, they don't take three months. These are <laughs> generally year-long investigations. So so I had to really scramble very quickly to get an indictment together. There was a lot of complaining from the victims that no one had been had been charged and had taken years to get an indictment done. So that's something we were very sensitive to, and we wanted to make sure that the perpetrators of this egregious fraud were brought to justice. The indictments are filed just in the nick of time. And as Rob begins to put his case together with fellow DOJ lawyer Sarah Wolf, the stories he hears about McKelvey are disturbing. I mean, his lifestyle was, was really crazy. One of the things the SEC required 
way to do was they required him to go through his bank account records and explain where all the money went because he got, you know, of the $54 million, my recollection is it was about $6 million went into Wade McKelvey's pocket. And at the time of the SEC injunction, the SEC wanted to get that money back to return it to the investors. And Wade claims that he had spent it all. And so they made him go through at all of his expenses. And I mean, the amount of partying, it was obscene how he spent the victim's money. And when you, and I had spent a lot of time interviewing the victims and they would tell stories about how they worked. This was their life savings. This is what they had spent their life working to achieve and how he just squandered the money so callously. It was uh, it was very impactful when we presented that evidence to the jury, I can tell you that. So people had to deal with the reality that, that they had maybe taken a loan out on their home. They had spent every penny they had and this guy wasted it. Absolutely, and not only a loan on their home, they took out credit card loans. They took out loans uh, of, of every fashion as he taught them to do. And so for many of the victims, this fraud scheme still hangs over their head because they haven't paid off those debts. They haven't paid off those credit card debts. They have not only do they have not any money to their name, they have no they have gigantic losses, loans they haven't paid back. Their credit history is is terrible. It's really left a long lasting impact to many, many of the victims. You know, one of the problems is is that people were bringing their friends and family into this. And so that really impacted those relationships. And people got divorced as a result of this fraud. The evidence, much of it sitting in the original SEC file from 2009, is overwhelming. Troy Rag pleads guilty in 2017. Amanda Noor, another executive, pleads guilty too. But McKelvey, he wants a trial. He wants to take his shot before a jury. Prosecutor Sarah Wolf kind of expects that. No, I was not surprised that he went to trial. This man is a professional manipulator, and he managed to manipulate 300 people in this scheme and who knows how many dozens of others before this scheme. So I'm sure he thought he could do the same in the courtroom. When the trial begins, Sarah and Rob both have a reaction to McKelvey right away. I recall having the distinct impression that he looked like a friend's dad. You know, just a normal-looking guy. How could this possibly be a criminal? I mean, he definitely has an air of confidence about him. I mean, I'd go so far as to say arrogance, but I, I didn't find that, you know, I found it offensive. But I could see how people could be persuaded by him because of the way he talks with such um, an air of confidence. Even though the evidence is overwhelming, as the trial begins, there is cause for concern because the star witness for the prosecution is now unavailable. One of the problems that we, we faced here is, you know, we had initially planned to have Troy Rag as a cooperating witness or uh, a cooperating defendant who would testify at the trial and be able to tell us exactly what he and Wade had been talking about behind the scenes because we didn't have that written down for us. But in the months leading up to the trial, Troy was engaging in a wholly separate fraud, so we had to cut him off. 
And, you know, when you have a sort of star witness who's going to give you the inside scoop on on what was going on between him and the, the defendant, and then all of a sudden he gets pulled out of the trial for good reason, you know, I was a little bit nervous about that. And in contrast, we had the other defendant who had pled guilty, Amanda Knorr. She did testify, but she didn't have the same close relationship with McKelvey that Troy had. So that was something that the defense harped on quite a bit that, you know, this guy who could really tell all isn't here. And, you know, it's always easier for a defendant to point at the empty chair and say it's all his fault. During the trial, McKelvey tries to argue that he had no idea what was really going on inside Mantria. His trial strategy was to blame everything on Troy and to say that he, you know, Troy, Troy lied to him too and that Wade honestly believed what Troy was telling him. And that was, in that, in, in many ways, Wade really, I mean, his testimony was that he was a victim too. But the prosecution's ace in the hole is McKelvey's own words, said to SEC investigators almost a decade earlier. One of the most critical pieces of evidence for us was Wade's testimony, his depositions that he gave to the SEC. The SEC attorneys in the case were were really, really good. And uh, especially the first deposition, Wade kind of walked in there pretty nonchalantly. And the SEC attorneys were very, very persistent in getting answers out of him. And he gave very incriminating, very devastating answers. I mean, he admitted that that there was basically, that Mantria wasn't making any money, contrary to his representations, that they really didn't have any assets, contrary to his representations to investors. So it was that dichotomy between what Wade was telling investors and what his sworn testimony was to the SEC. And this is before Mantria collapsed. This is while it was still operating. Wade was telling them what exactly he knew about what was going on. That wasn't something that he could walk away from during trial. Still, there are tense moments during the trial. The victim stood up and cursed out Wade and like, I mean, I, I thought he was ready to go over across the room and start like a fist fight with him at one point. That's when the kind of the fireworks happened was during trial. He cursed out Wade in front of the jury and stood up and Sarah, what do you remember about that? Yeah, this was the individual who knew Wade from, you know, his, the kids went to school together. And there was some, yes, there was cursing and it got very heated and the judge asked everybody to calm down and take a break. I think there was, you know, some comment about, you know, his daughter driving, uh, Wade's daughter driving some really nice car and his kids were, you know, not able to do that. He couldn't even pay for their college now because of, of the fraud. It was, it was highly emotional. And so was the closing argument, because it's not enough to show the jury that investors were hurt by Mantria. Prosecutors have to prove McKelvey's state of mind. In the closing, the, the entire thing was basically going back and forth between what he was telling investors, what he's telling the SEC. And you could just see it was night and day. The promises that he's you know, making to investors about the state of Mantria and the finances and how much money's coming in and how successful this all is. And then he tells the SEC, nothing is worth anything until it comes to fruition. I mean, that, that was absolutely critical because it showed his state of mind, which is, in a fraud case, the hardest part to prove. You have to improve a defendant's intent to defraud. And that is very difficult to get inside the head of a defendant. But when you have something as golden as the defendant's own words, 
in sworn testimony to the SEC, uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. The jury returns a guilty verdict very quickly. McKelvey doesn't react at all, Sarah says. After all, he's still free on bail, and he remains free from the October 2018 conviction until his sentencing hearing in August of 2021. But that's when things finally change. More than a decade after the Mantria Ponzi crumbled, McKelvey is sentenced to 18 years in federal prison. That's when he actually had the reaction, because it was just going back to the timeline. So the the SEC action was in November of 2009. We indicted the case in September of 2015. So during that whole time, he was out on bail. And so until the sentencing hearing, when the judge remanded him and sentenced him to 18 years in federal prison, I don't think it really hit him what was really going to happen. And when he went to the sentencing hearing and the judge remanded him and sent him away for 18 years, that's that's when he had the reaction, not so much when the jury came back. I don't think he was so surprised by the jury's verdict. But he still, his reality was, oh, I'm out on bail and I can still live whatever crazy life I'm living. And it, the reality doesn't sit in until someone leads you away in handcuffs, right? Correct. That's why for me, it was actually really shocking when Judge Slomsky at the sentencing finally put not only a period on the end of this case, but, you know, remanded McKelvey, like, you're going away now. You've had enough time out. I was shocked because of all the leniency hmm. he'd given the defendant up until that point. Now, all of a sudden, it all came to an end. So he went right from the sentencing to prison. There was no go home and settle your affairs like there often is. There was right? not. And his attorney made that pitch. And I recall the judge saying, no, you've had enough time. Now that the legal book on Mantria has finally been closed, there's a lot to learn from this story. Mantria's Ponzi scheme sounded attractive for many reasons, but perhaps the biggest, it traded on the news of the time. There's just something about when the buzz is in the air, everybody does, doesn't want to get left behind, right? Exactly. And, and a lot of people don't fully understand it. They don't under, uh, really understand what it's about, but they just know that it's the new hot thing and they want to get involved in it. And they, they think that they can make money by doing so. Mantria marketed itself as the next Microsoft, the next Apple, and they really told people that this was going to be you know, a multi-billion dollar company in the very near future. And those things do happen. I mean, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, those companies do exist. And so people believed it when they, when they told them that Mantria was going to be the next you know, multi-billion dollar company. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that was so appealing about this is this investment in this green energy concept was purportedly backed up by real estate. So something, you know, that you could see and touch and that collateralized aspect of this is what made people convinced that it was risk-free. One of the crimes committed by Mantria involved the kind of investors the owners targeted, consumer attorney Patrick Howard says. And here's a good term for anyone saving for retirement to know. Accredited investor. You know, not to be, you know, boring or technical, but, you know, the, the, the SEC has what's called accredited investor qualification, which means that you have enough money that you can invest in these sorts of high risk offerings and you're not going to wind up on the street, right? So you're what's called an accredited investor, meaning I can put a million dollars into this and if the million dollars goes up in smoke, you know, it's not going to impact my life. Well, in order to sell this type of security 
to these people, they had to be accredited investors. And Mantria had to qualify them as accredited investors. Well, none of that happened. And so all these people bought into these high risk, you know, which ultimately turned out to be Ponzi scheme. But in, even in the first instance, these high risk investment vehicles, when they didn't have the, the wherewithal to be investing in them. I, I don't think it's a bad idea for people to ponder themselves whether they could call themselves an accredited investor. That's a good way to look at it, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like accredit I mean, yourself. Yeah. Yes. And that leads to the advice that Patrick wants listeners to know. Yeah, I think, you know, if people are listening to this, if it makes the cut, that would be my only advice to, to people out there is that if you can't afford to lose that money, all of it, and continue on with your lifestyle as is, you shouldn't be making that investment. There's one other element that strikes me about this. Uh, at the time, in, in addition to the recession that, that had just happened, also in people's brains was green everything was everywhere, right? Yes. And so I think you didn't want to miss out on a cool green investment. It feels just a little bit like crypto to me. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you bring that up because those are the cases I'm getting hit with now. Right. I don't dabble in that world. And for, for all the reasons that I've given you, uh, I, I wouldn't invest in crypto. I, 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 again, I I just go back to the, if it feels too good to be true, it probably is. You know, I, I know everyone has dreams of being on the ground floor at Microsoft or, you know, your buddy who turns out to be Steve Jobs one day asked you to borrow, you know, asked you to invest $30,000. Next thing you know, you have <laughs> a fleet of private jets. You know, maybe I'm a skeptic or a cynic, but I just, if you can't afford to give your buddy the $30,000 to help him with his investment, you shouldn't do it. Sarah wants listeners to still believe in the justice system. I guess I would just like to end by, by saying that even though it took a long time to bring these people to justice, the wheels turn slowly, but they get there. And, and I would hope that your listeners would also, you know, just have faith that even though it might take a while, there are people who are dedicated to this cause and who are working night and day. And uh, Rob is certainly one of them. I mean, he, <laughs> It was it was brought to Rob's desk for an indictment in 30 or three months because there was faith that Rob could do it. And there's plenty more people like Rob in this office and around the country that are working hard to bring these criminals to justice. So have faith. And Rob, well, he's worried about the next Mantria case that will end up on his desk. Well, I think one of the other things about that, that made Mantria so successful is that during this time period, uh, the stock market was doing terrible economy was doing bad. The real estate market was doing bad. And so people didn't know where to put their money. They wanted something that was going to have good, positive returns. And they weren't getting that from traditional investments. And so a lot of people were at that point, were willing to take risks and to try something new in the hopes that they could see some, some positive returns, especially people who were either retirement age or near retirement age and they're looking at their nest egg, and it's not what they hoped it would be. You know, looking forward today, I mean, nobody knows what the stock market's going to do in the next year or two years. Certainly, the returns of the S&P 500 in the past year or so have been have been pretty poor in comparison to previous years. So it's during times like these where sort of traditional investments have not been performing so well. It really provides a ripe ground for fraudsters to approach people and come up with some, you know, package a, a new way of trying to defraud them. 
I guarantee you somebody right now is coming up with a Ponzi scheme involving some type of artificial intelligence product. And they're going to be out there pitching that to people and say, look, you can make, you know, 484% on your money investing in this, you know, artificial intelligence investment. And this is going to change the world and you're going to be fabulously wealthy. And the same pitch that Mantria made in terms of green energy, someone's going to be out there doing it on artificial intelligence as they're doing it with crypto right now. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. Our email address at The Perfect Scam is theperfectscampodcast at aarp.org, and we want to hear from you. If you've been the victim of a scam or you know someone who has and you'd like us to tell their story, write to us or just send us some feedback. That address again is the perfect scam podcast at aarp.org. Thank you to our team of scam busters, associate producer Annalie Embry, researcher Sarah Binney, executive producer Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan.